0: We started a series uh, a few weeks ago um, about, called Seasonal Emojis, and uh, today I was looking up actually what are the, like, how do you define, like, emotions, and there's really only six main predominant emotions. Everything else is just connected and kind of built together, and they form other emotions. And one of those emotions is surprise, Surprise, and, and the way I look at it, there's basically two types of, of people in this world. There's people who like surprises and there's people who don't like surprises. A funny story came out of my wife's uh, childhood and uh, her and her brother um, decided when mom and dad were gone that they would unwrap all the presents and see what they had, and then they rewrapped them all so good that they didn't notice. They didn't notice for like 15 or 20 years like good, and they finally let the cat out of the bag when they were in college. So um, you can guess which type of person my wife is. And so she's been known, if she was a character in Charlie Brown, she'd be snoopy. Like she she does not like a surprise. She will snoop through an email. She will, uh, you know, text around to see what she knows. She's been known too. Um, And so, uh, just to see what's coming down the pipe. So parents, heads up. Might be time to switch those hiding places, and uh, they might not be as hidden as you think. But uh, I think with this emotion of surprise is one that, um, even if we say we don't like surprises, I think we all like surprises. We just don't like bad surprises. We don't like to go in for a routine checkup and then find out we have cancer. We don't like to go into a job one day and then get let go. We love good surprises. We would love to go into our job and just out of nowhere get a, a surprise bonus or a Christmas bonus that you weren't expecting. We love good surprises, but we don't like bad surprises. Like a test that you know you didn't prepare for, but you are pleasantly surprised that you passed and got a B- minus when you didn't work for it. We love, a, we love good surprises. And as I was reading through just the, the biblical narrative, Jesus is a surprising king. He's a surprising king. And uh, I, I think we've got a lot of uh, ladies here who are, are pregnant here at the church. Praise God, church is growing in lots of ways. And, uh, and I, I always hear this, and people get up, some, some people get upset about this, is when a woman or a, a couple says they were surprised that they were having a baby. But really, you can't be that surprised. Like, you do. I mean, no, I don't want to be that guy that's like, you do know how this happens, right? But you do know how this happens, right? And, uh, but Mary is the only woman in history that can legitimately say that she was surprised. Like, and it went beyond surprise for her. She was probably overwhelmed emotionally. Absolutely overwhelmed. Have you ever been overwhelmed with surprise? What about in your relationship with God? Have you ever just been in awe of God working? Just in awe of his power, just in awe that he would invite you into his story, into his family? Have you ever just stood in amazement? like That comes closer to the emotion than, oh, you threw me a surprise party, you shouldn't have. It, it was so deep and revelatory for her that it was just blowing her mind. How could this happen? And I want to go through the, the text in, in Luke and in Matthew today and really talk, talk about three kind of surprising things about life um, with this surprising king. So let's begin in Luke chapter 2. Let's read, and I want to give you a lot of historical context because if you've ever looked at a picture that was just plain black and white, and then put a different backdrop in it. It just changes everything. If you started watching the news with just the actual green screen that's behind most people, it would be lame. But as soon as they put like, the cityscape or whatever, it kind of brings everything to light. So I'm going to give you a lot, a lot of historical context because I think the background, the backdrop, is what's really going to speak out this morning. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Any of you ladies out there that need a name, Quirinius seems like a cool one. Uh, And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, uh, to Bethlehem, the town of David, about an 80-mile trek, because he belonged to the house of David and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary. He was pledged to be married to him engaged, if you will, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room in the inn. Luke is writing to most excellent Theophilus, who is this very influential man of some sort. Probably was pretty wealthy if he was most excellent anything. If people gave you that title, most excellent, there was probably a reason for it. But we don't know much about him. But he writes, he's, uh, Luke is a physician and he writes in great detail. But it's interesting to me that he, just like the birth of, and the telling of the birth of Jesus is rather simple. It's rather simple. And, but the, the environment that he came into was rather complex. This guy is Caesar Augustus. You may not realize how large of a, of a character in world history he is. You learned about him when you were in 10th grade world history or in college. He was formerly, he's the artist formerly known as Octavian. Octavian, uh, after, he was actually the gr- um, great nephew of Julius Caesar. He, he is who, Julius uh, Caesar Augustus is who our month of August is named after, Kind of an influential figure if he gets his own month. <laughs> and so this is the scene in which Jesus enters into. And so just to kind of give you the, the backstory, story, Octavian, his great nephew, shows uh, great potential. He was smart. He, he, he had good influence. He was a strong leader. So Julius Caesar sees this and he adopts him as his ch- son. And as soon as he adopts him, he becomes the rightful heir of the Roman Empire. Well, if you remember back to your early world history classes, uh, there became, after Julius Caesar died, not too far after he was adopted, there became something known as the Second Triumvirate, which is Octavian, Lepidus, and Mark Antony, who, who ruled collectively as this kind of three-headed dominating force in the rule, uh, Roman Empire, and they kind of spread out. Well, Mark Antony and uh, Octavian pushed Lepidus out, and then after that, it was Octavian, And Mark Antony, and Mark Antony really sought to to take over because he was really next in line before this adoption, and so he brings Cleopatra, queen of Egypt, in, and they kind of they kind of um, gang up against Octavian in a battle, and Octavian actually takes them out. This is real world history, and so sometimes with such a majestic and amazing story, we can find ourselves distanced from it. But the reality is that this is real stuff. This is reality of what what happened, and it's not a fairy tale. And so he comes into this scene, and so uh, Octavian would end up um, dominating Mark Anthony and Cleopatra and winning and ruling the Roman Empire. And so he's this huge figure of power. And so when we see a census come, it's not the census that we think of, of just where it's about um, you know how old are your kids? How old is everybody who's who 's living who's been born who's died um, how what male female it's not that it's that, but it's far more than that and the first thing I want to point out in this is, is that the power of God is surprising. His power is surprising the, the, the power of this surprising king does not come in the way that we thought. And the contrast, the juxtaposition here between Caesar Augustus and Jesus Christ of Nazareth could not be more stark. I could list page after page of the differences in the way that Caesar Augustus went about his life and the way that Jesus went about his life. Just to name a, a few, Caesar Augustus was born of a wealthy family. Jesus was born of a poor, into a poor family. Caesar Augustus took out his enemies. Lepidus, you're gone. Mark, Anthony, Cleopatra, you're gone. He he exerted his power over his enemies. Jesus taught to love his enemies. I could go on and on about the the incredible contrast between uh, these two people, but it sets the backdrop for what Jesus was entering into and the type of king and the type of God that we have, that his power works in mysterious ways. And this census here that we think is about population is really in a war-decimated region where there's been fighting and battles. I mean, we look at what's happening in Syria and Aleppo, those pictures, those images, that's like the reality that they were facing in, in this Roman dominance where they're fighting and, and lots of fighting and killing, economies shattered, lines have been blurred over who's sovereign over who. And Jesus enters into this chaotic political social world. The is a mess. And so Caesar Augustus is showing his power to try to get the economy back going. The people love Caesar Augustus. There's a reason he got a month; it's because he kind of restored order and peace to a certain extent. Because there was only one ruler, there was not the fighting. But he enters in. Jesus enters in into this world, and this census is really about taxation. It's really about power. It's really about restoring the economy, is kind of the backdrop of what's taking place here. And so, this is Caesar Augustus. This is his opportunity to flex his political muscle. Because if Mary and Joseph did not go there, people did not report to their hometowns uh, to report for the census, uh, then what? I mean, look what he did to Lepidus, look what he did to Mark Antony and Cleopatra. What would he do to us? There was great fear of the people. And so when Caesar Augustus is flexing his political muscle, he thinks that he is showing power. What's so funny and beautiful about this is that it's really God flexing his in the most surprising of ways. Because the prophecies that had led up to this, that baby was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And I don't know about you, but I was not getting my wife to take long trips, walking or a donkey or whatever, at seven months in pregnancy or eight months or whatever you want to guess. We don't really know uh, what, at what point. But regardless, there was no reason for this young couple to uproot and go back to his hometown. But they did. And it was to fulfill prophecy. So when Caesar Augustus thinks he is showing his power, it's really God is who is showing his power. God's power is surprising. And many times we don't see the big picture. We don't understand the big picture of what's at play. But here's what I would tell you today: is trust God in the details. Trust God in the details, even when you don't see the big picture. Trust God. Um if you're anything like me, I like to have things planned out and in order and how they're gonna go. And nothing, and then that means all the details and working those out. But my my spiritual journey has transformed as I actually began to trust God with the future. I I, I used to like post quotes about me controlling my own destiny and, and, and all these things, and I'm not going to get into a, a giant conversation about this, but the, I think there's a heart issue more than there is an eye issue here. That I really thought that it, my life was about me taking co- control of the future and not me submitting my present to God, and, and not me figuring out and planning out and working all the details of my future in perfect fashion because they rarely work out in perfect fashion but if I could submit my present if I could trust God in in even the smallest details that I don't understand he would do far greater with that than what I would be able to do in my own will and my own plans and so I just want to say to trust God in the details I don't know what those details are of your life I I don't know um what things God's asking you to do or, or things you're having to follow him in and you're just not you don't understand why trust him in the details um even when you can't see the big picture, just walk faithfully in that uh, Romans 8.28 says that um, God works all things to good for those that love him. And so trust him, love him, and know that he's going to work um, all things, every single one of them. Every single one of those situations that, that you're over and you, you're sick and tired of dealing with or you're, you're, you're afraid to step out in faith and trust him in it. Uh, the second thing, let's continue reading, verse 8 and through 20. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about this surprising king and his. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. We'll just continue reading here. Keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. It will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be assigned to you. You will find a baby. Wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. There's a lot of questions we have about what this scene looked like. When it took place. What time was it? What time of year was it? What day was it? And let me just dive into those because I know that's always an interesting conversation for people. But I'm doing it for a reason, not just for head knowledge here. But there's something God wants to speak to our heart about this. One, Jesus was not born in zero... um, A.D. or zero B.C. He was not born during that year. That's a, a, a dating issue that happened. I know that's what we often think of, but Matthew tells us that Herod was still king, and Herod died in four B.C. So, and this is a, a widely proven fact. It's not like even like one like some of the other ones that we don't know. It, it was somewhere between four and five B.C. Most likely that that Jesus was born, and so all of our dating um, is just a, a few years off. Um, a lot of times, again, we, we picture a manger scene of what that looked like, and, and what is most common and most popular is it's most likely not what it, where it took place. Most likely, Jesus was, in fact, born in a, a cave of some sort. Our kids are going to use a teepee today, because a cave is really hard to build. <laughs> <laughs> a teepee is really easy to build. Um, and so... He was, he was probably born in a cave. Justin the Martyr, who was one of our early church fathers, in 150 AD is the earliest record we have of someone saying where Jesus was born. And he says it was indeed um, uh, a cave. And so what that looked like, it was probably like a hollowed out area and they probably had built some. It's like I don't have to build one side of my house. I just lean it up against the thing. It, that's kind of the, the setting here. Uh, it was, it'd be warmer in there. The wind couldn't get t- to your animals and to your family, so most likely it was a scene like that. Another common thing that, that is argued about in terms of time and date is what month? Was Jesus born on December 25th? Um, and while mo- all of us growing up like that is the day Jesus was born, um, the high probability is that he was not born on December 25th. Um, the, the alternate kind of theory and thoughts is that Jesus was born sometime in September. And I actually push back from that one, too, because of the, the, there's a couple of reasons that, that people think that it was September. I push back on that one as well and just say, I don't know, and I will just really know, and that's kind of okay. I'm okay with that. Um, the, the reason a lot of people say is because of this text right here. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. Shepherds wouldn't live out in the winter, right? They wouldn't do that, except that the climate there in Bethlehem was very similar to what it is in, say, Jacksonville, Florida. Our, our climate is very mild in the winter, lows in the mid-40s regularly uh, at best. Like, we wish it was in the mid-40s right now, right? It's 80 outside. Um, it, and so it, it could be very possible that they were out in the fields in December, in winter. And so we don't really know, and so I won't, I won't labor on that any longer, but I do want to highlight this for just a second. Shepherds were living out in the fields nearby. Shepherds are an interesting place in this story. And most excellent Theophilus that is reading this, this wealthy man, as soon as he hears shepherds, he, like, it's a despised occupation. It, I, I don't, I don't want to, like, throw something out, but there's probably someone, some occupation that you just look down on. Maybe they're not despised in your mind, but every time you have to call one of these, or anytime you ever encounter one of these, man, those so ins- they're just a bunch of, like, you could feel, like, you've probably got one of those, right? Occupation that we look down on. But the shepherds, they were that of this generation. They were despised. Because they took their sheep all over everybody's property and they grazed on it and they probably left their mess behind too. So people went walking out in their yard later and stepped in it. <laughs> right, this was before the, the age of the bags that you pick up, the dog poo. You know, so they went and, do it, and they grazed on people's property without asking. Not only that, they were despised because when they were out in the fields, nobody was at home taking care of their wife and kids. And so they were socially unaccepted. And so, as most excellent Theophilus is reading this, it's kind of stunning to him, I would imagine, that the message, the angels are coming to shepherds? Like, why are you coming to shepherds? Like, the magi, that makes sense to most excellent Theophilus, but shepherds? Like, why shepherds? My point I want to make here is that this king that is surprising, his, his invitation is surprising. His invitation is surprising. And that he invites... Us. If you've ever felt like an outcast at any point in your life, ever been k- picked last for, for um, kickball or didn't get that you just went through failed interview after failed interview and couldn't get a job or been let go down after time, ta- uh, time after time, and, and you just felt on the outside or even socially with friends or if you've been talked about behind your back or you name it, at some point in all of our lives, we felt like we were on the outside. And this message of this king that comes to us and Theophilus is reading and we are taking it now is that the invitation is not what we thought it would be and it's not to who we thought it would be. And So if you've ever felt like that, know that the invitation doesn't come to you last, you don't get picked last, but he invites you in and that Jesus is near to the brokenhearted, he's near to the outcast. We see Jesus in his life constantly reaching out to those that are down and out, to those that are socially unacceptable, to those who are unclean, Jesus is reaching out to, to provide hope and healing. Billy Graham provides this very, I feel like, simple thoughts about these three invitations that God offers us. And he says this quote, we're saved to serve we're redeemed to reproduce spiritually. We're fished out of the miry clay so that we in turn may become fishers of men. He offers these three invitations. One is the invitation to rest. The invitation to rest. This is an invitation. Come all who are weary and lady and, and heavy and I'll give you rest. It's a. It's an invitation that brings forgiveness, peace, joy. It's an invitation to discipleship. Come follow after me and I will make you fishers of men. It's a Invitation that gives us purpose, growth, responsibility in his kingdom. And thirdly, it's an invitation to abide. With this invitation, it brings affirmation, security, affection. And for some of us in the room, like maybe we have understood one of these invitations. But if we've only understood one and not all three, we're not understanding the full invitation. And this can not only... I think this can be dangerous for our spiritual walk, because many of us, like we constantly go to God and respond to the "Come all who are weary," because a lot of us we stay weary to keep from getting weary. <laughs> right? We, we do. We just stay at that place, and, and we don't accept and, and accept and understand the invitation to discipleship that includes purpose and growth and deep responsibility in His kingdom. Or we, we forget and it's just like peace on our terms and, and the idea of abiding that we get from John chapter 15. Abide in me as I in you. Dwell in me. You can bear no fruit apart from me. This idea of abiding in Christ is where our affirmation comes from on a daily basis. Not from how our boss says we're doing or what mom and dad called us when we were kids or last night. Our affection doesn't come from all um, the, the clamor of this world, or who loves us and who doesn't, it comes from an invitation from God that we are loved and we are invited into His family. And so, I just challenge you today to accept His invitation, trust Him in the details as kind of point one, and trust His plan, trust His power when you can't see the big picture. And then, here, accept the invitation. Accept the invitation. It's all three. It's not just one. And so maybe one is resonating with you right now. Maybe, it, like, I haven't been abiding. I've just kind of been going to God, doing my forgiveness thing, uh, you know, early on, going to God for peace, and God, will you give me joy? And, and maybe I'm, I'm not in this constant relationship of growth and responsibility, or maybe I'm not daily abiding in God. I just challenge you to think through those and accept the invitation that's, that's offered to us. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. And this we see kind of the the opposite, just as we see the contrast between Caesar Augustus and Jesus entering into the scene. Here we actually see a contrast between Luke's gospel, which it's reached out to the shepherds and Matthew's gospel, that the Magi get there much much later. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, again, there's the, the King Herod part. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and come to worship him. When King Herod heard of this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Think about this Jerusalem, holy city, stirred. Some translations say disturbed. Uh, That's actually what this one says. But stirred is is kind of the key word here. All Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea. They're speaking from the prophet um, here. For this is what the prophet has written. But you Bethlehem in the te- in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people I- Israel. Do you see after we kind of unpack some of the things we have this morning just see the layers of this about rulers the prophetic like talks about rulers and he enters into the scene against one of the largest global rulers in the world you're not the least and in this this kind of paradigm of the shepherd uh, of the shepherds out there and that he will shepherd his people Israel. He will lead and guide them and that even that that Jesus would be referred to as a shepherd was an extreme um, stamp about humility and what his power would look like. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared and worshipped him. Um, Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned in, warned in a dream um, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. We, we missed a couple of verses there. I'm going to pull those back up. You guys noticed it, didn't you? You guys are smart. Yeah. Um, let me back up at verse 7. Uh, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may to go and... It doesn't put quotes here like that he was being sarcastic, but I feel like this is like where you need the, the um, quotation marks here. So that I may worship him. I lost my place again. Uh, and after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen uh, in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, uh, of of incense and of myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This last thing I I, want to make about the the surprising king is that the entire journey is surprising. If you're anything like my wife, you love to eliminate (laughs) the surprise. (laughs) or you enjoy enjoy the journey to figure it all out, right? All of us do that. We would love to figure out the future. We constantly worry about what's ahead. We constantly try to figure out how this conversation will go and how things will play out. But this journey with the king is is supposed to be surprising. I think the word I would trans I, I would kind of translate that into at this point is wonder. Like there's supposed to be some unknown there's supposed to be the the beauty of the wonder that we often try to eliminate from our walk with God and maybe that's been missing maybe it's been missing because you you know all the stories maybe it's because you've insulated yourself away from really opening your heart to what else God might actually teach you. Maybe you've been too busy to to even consider it. But these magi, influential men from the east, they they were the council of kings and rulers. They were the opposite of the shepherds in the text. And here they make this incredible journey, much further than what Joseph and Mary made. Far after, like they saw this, again, they saw the star over that probably the night of, I'm, I'm just guessing here, we don't know, probably that night of, and they, and they take off. They, they leave to go and follow the star. They, they follow what's familiar to them. They were astrologers, not astronomers, they were astrologers. They studied the stars. They were scientists, and they studied the prophecies. They, they knew all of this stuff. And, and they follow what is familiar to them and what makes sense to them. And, and here's what I would say to you is that you've entered in you know, and understood the gospel. You've understood God through a way that made sense to you originally. But on the journey between when you leave the east and when you arrive, which is the day that we shall see Jesus face to face, that journey is filled with wonder it's filled with surprises about the nature of who God is, uh, about the way in which his power works in our life, the way in which his invitation reaches out to even the, those of us in the room that feel like the lowest. This journey is surprising, and this king is surprising to us, so I just encourage you, embrace, embrace the wonder. This journey for them uh, was filled with challenges it's filled with challenges, they, physical challenges to get from the east to where they were going. Uh, there is moral conflicts here as, as uh, Herod is trying to manipulate them and use them to actually kill Jesus. They're, they're, they're kind of filled with moral conflict. Do we do what this great ruler is asking us to do, or do we just simply... Um, follow the journey uh, of our hearts that we've been led on by the king. But th- those challenges, they, they change us, and we don't leave a different direction, just like with the Magi. And, and they come, and w- when they finally get there, when they finally get there, I just kind of try to picture it at this point. The baby's about the age of my baby now just like three and a half months, probably about the time they got there was maybe a couple months after. The baby's not, you know, um, like just fresh out, out the womb. The baby's cooing and laughing a little bit, and it's just a different, it's a different scene. And they recognize these men of great influence who have been the presence of kings. Like, bow down great journey that's challenged them people have tried to manipulate what would happen they bow down and they, they worship and they what, what strikes me in this is that they came prepared they came prepared to give to sacrifice this journey is filled with challenges and sacrifice and most of us want to just be insulated into the, just the initial invitation, peace and joy and rest. But there's so much more to it. And I think when we in, embrace not only the wonder, but we embrace the challenge, when we, we don't just embrace what Jesus gives us, but we bring what we bring to him, we really begin to understand fulfillment there was nothing that was an appropriate gift for the Messiah. And often we feel like what we have is not enough. My frankincense, or my myrrh, or my fool's gold, it's not enough. It's not enough to bring him. But the invitation affirms us bring what you have. Shepherds didn't have a lot, but they came, they received good news. And the key word I want to let ring out in this room this morning, because I I believe that today can be a a, a step for each one of us in our hearts. A step to let God work in your life again. a, a, A step today where we receive deep down, not just one of the invitations, but all of the invitation to come. To come and follow, to come and live, to come abide in him, and to embrace this journey of surprise and wonder all over again. When Taryn and I started dating when we were in college, uh, it was filled, it's filled with mystery. Right? And the more time goes on, we've been together now, Yeah, um, 12, 12 years, sorry. I had to do some math. You ever have to do that? I had to do some math. 12 years, and as time goes on, like we, we just feel like we know some things, and we just kind of get insulated in that and miss out on the beauty of what that early journey looks like, but that, those feelings of wonder and those feelings of surprise, like we cannot fathom the greatness and the goodness and the power, and the depth, and the breadth of his love and his plan in our life. So don't stop exploring. Don't like come around a corner anymore in life or another season and not look up and be like, God, I see you working in that. I didn't understand it then, but you are so good. I've experienced you, I've tasted. I've seen that you're good. And so, if you know this story, Fronts and front and backward. If you could preach it better than I can, just enter into a season to just be surprised, to awaken and wonder, and just say, "God, I want to see you in a new light." And maybe that's this morning, like as our kids will come and do a beautiful you know, telling in their own eyes of of this incredible story. And maybe it's not, again, what shepherds thought the kind of king they were coming to see, a baby wrapped in cloth in a cradle, manger. Not what they probably expected. But it was more, it was more than what we ever need. Um, And so today, I want to invite you to trust in his power, accept his invitation, and embrace the wonder of the journey. Embrace the, what's around the corner as we submit our lives to him, as we trust in him and bring all that we have to him.